Well, thank you all for your good singing for those songs. Thank you, Olivia, for accompanying us. And uh, once again, good evening. It's good to, to see you all here tonight. And thank you for choosing to come out tonight on this special occasion as we think of the last day of the year. It's hard to believe that when the clock strikes midnight, 2013 will be a thing of the past and we'll be entering into a new year. It's hard to believe. So in, I was telling some people, if you had anything you wanted to get done this year, you better do it quick because you only got a few hours left. Um, hurry up on that. But no, we're looking forward to a, a good year. And, um, and tonight we're going to be celebrating communion together after this message. And I always think that's, that's a good way to ring in the new year as well for us to recommit ourselves uh, to following Christ anew and afresh. And so we'll be doing that as you see everything's set up here for that. Also, one, one additional thing before we get into our text tonight. Um, for some, uh, I, I was reminded on Sunday morning that we ran out of some of the chronological uh, Bible study guides or the through the Bible in a year. And a few people were asking me, why don't we have one that's straight through the Bible in biblical order of, of books, Genesis to Revelation? And since we ran out of some of the other ones, I did find this online and there's some print in the back. So if you didn't get one that you're hoping to get, or if you've always wanted to just read straight through the way it appears in your Bibles, these are in the back as well. I just wanted to make you aware of that. But hopefully you're, you're turned open to your Bibles right now to Philippians 3, which we just read, and that's what we're going to be exploring just a little bit tonight as we uh, consider this together. Uh, personally, I think New Year's are, are a good thing. I'm glad that we mark New Year's Day as a special event on our calendar because I find that for me, New Year's often gets me to refocus, right? And, and I don't know if that's true of you, but for me, that's always the case. I'm constantly thinking about what was the year like um, after spending 12 months of going through our regular routine. It's good for us to take a moment to stop and reflect on the past and consider what our real priorities are. And as we think of New Year's resolutions, um, we, we have a chance uh, to, to ask questions like, what do I consider most important in life? Or what are my goals for the coming year? Um, and when we get down to the heart of the matter, what we're really asking is, what should my life be about? If we start thinking even beyond just a year period of time, if we think in just in the future in general, what should my life be about? And you see, it's good for us to stop from time to time and ask those kinds of questions, to, to stop and get a larger picture of life so that we ensure that we are working towards it and not just walking aimlessly. With that being said, uh, what is the big picture for our lives according to the Bible? Have you ever wondered that? What is it that we should ultimately be striving for in 2014 and ultimately throughout our entire lives? What's the greatest goal that we could have for ourselves as we look ahead? And the passage that we're going to consider tonight gives that answer. Uh, and if you're still there in your Bibles, uh, op open it once again to Philippians 3, um, or you can turn there if you've lost it already. But that's where we'll find our answer. What's the greatest goal that we could have for ourselves? Verse 8 will tell us very simply. And then we'll get into the rest of the passage. Uh, read, read along with me here. Verse 8 says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And also in verse 10, if you jump ahead, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. You see, in the Apostle Paul's view, 
There's nothing more valuable, it says right here, nothing on earth that even compares in importance to knowing Jesus. And that's what we should be striving towards. If you ask the question, what should my life be about? What should I be seeking most of all as we think of this coming year, which will be upon us in just a few hours? What should my year be about? Knowing Christ Jesus. That leads to a series of questions. What does it exactly mean then to know Jesus? Okay, if that's what I should be striving towards, what does that mean exactly? And, and two, if we're already saved, we might ask, don't we already know Jesus to some degree? Is Paul talking about something different here? Third question we could ask is if there's something that we're supposed to strive towards and this is it, how do we do it? How do we do it? It sounds great that we need to know Christ, but what does that entail for our risen Savior? Those are questions that we'll consider tonight, and I think our passage answers. It's very practical for us in that way. So let's start with the first one, the the most basic question. If Paul is telling us that there's nothing better than to know Jesus, what does that actually mean? Well, for starters, we have to say that knowing Jesus involves more than just knowing about Jesus, although certainly it includes that. The first uh, and, and first and foremost, Jesus wanted us to know who he was factually, of course. Without that, we don't really know who we're talking about. But we see that is, is important, and it's a bare minimum in Matthew 16. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But in verses uh, 13 through 17, he asks his, his, his disciples, he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So you see, knowing Jesus obviously requires that we know who he is to be able to know factually who he is. That's the starting point. And so I hope all of us in this room already know factually who Jesus is to, to a basic degree. He is the risen one. He is the king of kings. He is the promised Messiah. But certainly that isn't all that Paul has in mind when he says that he desires us to know Christ in the coming year. You see that in the Bible, uh, when we look at this word to know, to know can often have a deeper meaning than just the way our English word can sometimes communicate. For example, in Genesis 4.1, it says that Adam knew his wife, which in the context implies a much deeper intimate knowledge of her. Not just that he knew about her, knew her name, uh, but, but he knows her in a deeper and a more intimate way. And also we could look to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. Again, you don't have to turn here, but a different use of this word to know. And and Jeremiah is talking about a future day where Christ returns again and where God makes everything new. And he says, in that day, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, is what it says, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So you see, in heaven, when we finally reach there, we'll know God fully. And you can tell just by what I read to you tonight that that's more than just knowing factually about him. But it involves a deep personal knowledge and a trust and an obedience behind that knowledge. And and a mutual knowledge that God knows us and we know him. So what Paul is saying tonight is that there's nothing greater that you could desire than to know Jesus. That is, to know him so well that you follow him with your whole heart. 
that you desire to be just like Him, that you understand the power that comes from being united with Him. And yes, even that you know Him so well that you'd be willing to suffer and, and lose something for His sake. That's why it says in verse 10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to what? To His death. Or as the NIV puts it, becoming like Him in His death. I like the way that puts it in, in that particular translation. So that's what we should seek after this year. That's what we should follow after, that we would love Christ so much that we'd be willing to sacrifice anything in order to be more like him and to follow his leading. But that leads to the next question. Don't we already know Christ to some degree because we're saved? And to that, Paul would certainly say yes. Look again at Philippians 3, uh, verses 8 and 9 specifically. More than that, it says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, and here's the key part, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So right there in that last part, Paul is saying that there is a righteousness that you and I already have, regardless of of what our status is here tonight. If if you know Jesus as your Savior, a righteousness has been declared upon you. That's called imputation. Christ's righteousness has been given to you, even as your sinfulness has been imputed to Him, so that He has absorbed all the wrath of God for you. He has uh, has given you His righteousness. Further, if we look down at the passage you're in, verse 16 says the same thing. It says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So we see this paradox here. He's saying we want to live to a certain standard, but yet on the other hand, we've already attained it. So you can see right here, Paul's speaking of both things at the same time. On one hand, God has already declared you righteous. If we were to die tonight... And be in his sight. And if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, God will declare you righteous. Not because of anything you've done or how faithfully you've lived, but because of Christ's unchanging righteousness. But yet he's also saying we need to attain it. But the idea I want to get across is there is a sense in which we already have this righteousness. But if each of us already knows Christ to a degree because of that, then why do we need to work at it? Well, the reason is because in our lives, we have not yet practically reached the standard of holiness that God has already declared for us. So even though it's declared, we still are striving to reach there practically in our lives. So we look again at verses 12 and 13. Look down to your Bibles at at those verses. And Paul says very clearly, not wanting to be misunderstood. He says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Again, if you look to verse 13, it says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, etc., etc. And I think all of us in this room could say the same thing, like, yes, amen, that's true of me too. Not that I'm already there. I desire to be there, and I'm sure many of you in this room, probably all of us in this room, would say the same thing. I, I would love to be more like Christ. That's my desire. That's my goal. And, and yes, I'm glad God has saved me and declared me righteous, but I'm not there yet. I still have so much to do. Especially as you look back on 2013, maybe you're saying to yourself, boy, I really messed up back here in this particular month or with this particular situation. 
I can't believe that. I want to I improve. I want to do better in 2014. And, and it shows we're still striving. We're still working towards it. And, and the good thing is that God's not done with us yet. Paul was in the same boat. If you look up to Paul and think of him as some sort of spiritual giant, he's saying the same thing to us tonight. He was right there with us. I'm reading an excellent book right now. It's by David Platt. It's called Follow Me. And it's been really challenging me a lot in, in, in areas that are related to this. Um, basically, in this book, um, he challenges the American idea of what it means to be Christian, as that's kind of been twisted over the years and kind of redefined in some ways. And he tells a story in this book of a man named John who watched an episode of Tom and Jerry as a kid. And in this episode, Tom was sent to a cartoon version of hell for something he did. And, uh, and David Platt goes on to describe this, uh, this scene that scared John so much he talked to another man at church about it. And the man said to him, well, you don't want to go to hell, do you? No, John responded. Okay, then, the man said, pray this prayer after me. He said, dear Jesus, and he paused. And after a while, John realized he was supposed to repeat what the man was saying. So he said, dear Jesus. And he went through the whole prayer. I admit, I'm a sinner. I desire you to come into my life and, and to save me. And he said, amen. And, and, and after he concluded, the man looked at John and said, son, you are saved from your sins and you don't have to ever worry about hell again. Platt goes on to ask, is that all there is to becoming a Christian? Praying a prayer and then not having to worry about hell anymore. If that's what being saved has become in this country, then Platt says we're way off the mark. Because he looks at certain passages, especially as we look in the beginning of the Gospels, and when Jesus first encounters the disciples, he doesn't say, if you want to go to heaven, pray a prayer. Or something like that. He says, follow me. Follow me. Which forms the title of the book, of course. And he says, when Jesus called these people to, to be like him, he wasn't calling them to simply be saved from hell, but to abandon their lives and to be willing to sacrifice something. To sacrifice everything for his sake. And that's far, far different than just wanting to get out of punishment. And again, not that, that anybody who has ever prayed a prayer like that isn't sincere or that that isn't true conversion when people understand what's behind it. But what he's driving at in the book is that following Christ can't just be simply a one-time decision whereas we, we leave that in the past and just go and live our lives some other way. That following Christ is more than just a moment. It's more than just a one-time decision. It is, it is a, a choice to, to strive after Christ, to know him better, to, to sacrifice our lives for his sake, and to know him as Paul is, is commanding us to do, uh, just asking us to, to pursue ourselves. It's a daily pursuit. It's a daily call to die. That task can seem exhausting when you put it in those terms. If, if you say, well, even though I'm saved, I, I have a lot of work to do. And my work isn't going to be done until my life is over. That might seem exhausting. Especially as you think of the whole year that's in front of you or however uh, many years God has given us left to live. So with all that time that we've failed in the past and with all the progress we still need to make, how do we truly pursue this goal in 2014 of following Christ and knowing Him better without just giving up and being exhausted? Well, Paul tells us. He tells us in this passage. Again, look at verses 13 and 14. He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, 
But this is what I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press forward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So as you look back at 2013, I'll ask you again, is there anything that you wish you could change? Are there things you look back on your own life and you say, I wish I would have done something better? Don't let it take you off course. It's not that we um, you know, can necessarily just forget everything that happened, but rather we, what we're being commanded to do here is, is to refuse to let it disqualify us from the future. When Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, it's not that we can forever erase it from our memory, but we recognize that in Christ we're forgiven and that God has granted us grace to continue on so that we're not disqualified, so that it shouldn't stop us from pursuing what comes next and greater growth in our lives. God's grace is the air that we breathe. Without it, we would die. Without it, we wouldn't be able to go on. But God's grace allows us to continue to go on and to emerge from our past failures. So Paul would say, step one in pursuing this is, don't allow your past to stop you from pursuing Christ. Forget what is past and press on. And that leads to the next thing we're supposed to do. That is to reach forward. Again, verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing that I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We press on. We keep on striving. We look at what we need to work on, and we keep on pursuing it. And Paul uses this illustration of a runner to get the point across. As he's talking about reaching the prize and pressing on, he doesn't say runner by name, but you can tell that's what he's talking about. I, anybody who knows me, even just a little bit, you know I'm not a runner, okay? Whatever an athletic person is, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I tried to fake it a little bit this year and run a little bit. I'm not running anymore. (laughs) I wish I was. That lasted for a little while, and maybe that should be a resolution of mine to get back into it, but currently I'm I'm not there. It takes a lot of discipline for me. And so I, I, not being a runner myself, I don't know how actual runners think about this kind of thing. I can only tell you what my limited, very short sliver of experience was like. I know that as I was trying to run for just a few weeks, I would just start at a mile at a time. And, and, uh, and that's about as far as I got, to be honest. But I, I, I was getting exhausted because I was just totally out of shape going from nothing to trying to do something. And the only thing that could get me through running that small distance of, of a mile was just seeing the goal ahead. Whether I was running around in our neighborhood, I'd say to myself, okay, I'm halfway through, or I can see my house. It's almost here. Don't collapse. Don't fall on the side of the road. You can do it. You'll live through it, okay? Or if we were downstairs um, you know, on the treadmill, you know, I, I looked at the, okay, it's 0.5 of a mile. I can do this. I was just looking at the numbers. I couldn't get myself past just looking at the numbers. I'm like, move faster, move faster. But that's what kept me going, seeing the goal that was ahead. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, keep your eye on the prize. Or um, I think of the Hostetter's bug. I hope you don't mind me bringing that up. But I, keep your mind on the goal, I think, is what it said, right? Am I, do I have that right? Yeah, the silver bug. I think that's what it was written on on their vehicle. It's a great phrase. And that's what Paul is driving at here. You could pull that right out of uh, Philippians 3. Uh, he's saying, keep your mind on the goal. That's, that's what he's pressing on towards. And, and, and as long as we have a goal in mind, it helps us to stay on track. 
If I ever just forgot why I was running, I'd give up. I'd be like, this is a lot of pain. Why would anybody in the world want to do this? This makes no sense. And I still think that to a degree. But um, not even though I recognize why it's, why it's useful. Um, if, if I hadn't seen my house, if I hadn't seen what it was I was driving for, if I didn't have, okay, I want to r- run a mile, I would have given up. And if we lose sight of what it is we're striving towards this year, we'll, we'll quit, okay? When we remember who our master is, he died for us. He lived his life as a servant. He gave his all for us when he was perfect. And he didn't have to. He didn't have to rescue somebody like me who doesn't deserve it, but he did. And he died and he lived his life as an example for me and for his church. When I consider that, that's the goal I'm, I'm pressing towards, to be more like my master because he demands nothing less than that. So keeping our, our mind on the goal is how we can press on. We should seek to know Jesus better in the new year when there are so many other kinds of resolutions we could make, and, and they are not bad to make. I'm not saying you should only make one and this is it. Certainly we can improve on whatever uh, areas God has placed upon our heart, but I, I say we should make this one of them and, and perhaps our top priority because there's nothing more valuable, nothing more valuable, our text says, than knowing Christ Jesus. For as appealing as it would be to, to get more in shape or to, to learn a new skill or to become more organized or to whatever, to learn something, whatever your goals might be for this year, Paul is saying there is nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. Philippians 3.8 says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's nothing more valuable on earth than knowing Him. Not just knowing about Him as Savior, but knowing firsthand how much better life is when we follow His commands. How life, when pursued our own way, brings far less joy than when we live according to his commands. Or knowing firsthand just how much peace he brings. When you go through difficult circumstances, when you compare times in your life where you didn't trust in him as much, and you can see how much peace he brings, how he enables you to get through things you could never imagine getting through on your own. Uh, Or knowing firsthand the power of his resurrection, as it says knowing from experience how much power Jesus can grant to you, how he gives you courage, for example, to speak out about him in ways that you could never muster up yourself, or knowing the power Jesus has to, to transform you completely. When you think of past sins and thinking to yourself, how could I ever get out of this pattern? I've been just messing up over and over again in the same ways uh, year after year after year. And then to know firsthand how after just falling back in the same pattern to see Jesus transform you. To know his power personally. That's what it's talking about when it says knowing him. Knowing him in a very personal, intimate manner. Knowing Christ like that is worth more than all the gold or the silver or the diamonds of this world. Why else should we pursue Christ? One final reason. To obtain the prize. And we already alluded to this a little bit. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God has a prize awaiting us. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, As it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of what God has prepared for those who love Him. We love our Savior. We want to please Him. And how wonderful it would it be to enter into heaven hearing the words 
of Matthew 25, 23. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. We don't know when our life will be over. It could be many, many years from now. It could be in this coming year. It could be any, that any, any one of us might not be here for this very service next year. And I'm not just talking about somebody who's older. That could apply to me as well. I don't know if this would be my last New Year's Eve service. And I have no plans to depart this earth. I'm not saying anything like that. But none of us knows. But Paul's saying, press on, regardless. Not even needing to know that information. Press on as hard as you can to know Christ better. To seek Him, to be more like Him. Because you desire that prize. Because you desire that much. That's why we continue to pursue knowing Jesus. For all those reasons. So as you think upon the new year, may we consider all things as loss for the sake of knowing our Savior better. Continue to strive to love Him more, to become like Him more, to trust Him more. May you find greater joy in Him also. And if you're wondering, how can I do that? I would just ask you to take some time tonight to pray about it. Before you go to bed, uh, before the day is over, just ask God to help you with that, to give you wisdom to know where God would have you to grow and how you can pursue him better. Because each of us will probably answer that question a little bit differently. And for as many applications as I could draw out, I can't cover everything. So that's where you come in. And that's where your involvement needs to take place. So tonight, seek him and desire to seek him as we think of the new year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to know you more. As I'm sure, it's, it's something that's on our minds throughout the year. But God, here, as we've come to the, the final day of 2013, once again, we have an opportunity to, just to reexamine where we stand. God, I, I pray that when it comes to this time next year, we won't find ourselves to be in the exact same place or falling backwards. But God, that we could look back on the, on the past year and see you at work that we will be able to say, yes, I know Christ, and I've been able to know his power personally at work in my own heart and my life. How you have sustained me, how you have got me through, through so many things, and how you've enabled me to grow. God, may we commit ourselves tonight to that very purpose, to know you as Paul commands us to. And God, may you find us faithful whenever uh, that time comes that you call us home to be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.